Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young uh, superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. And I felt be down in flames from the bombs my style. Welcome back to the Chess Underground. It is January 2022. I was going to say 2021, but look, I got that right. Um, I am here with JJ Lang, potentially Twitter's favorite troll. JJ, what's up, man? Oh, not too much. You know, just hanging out in a basement in Nebraska, as we <laughs> as are we all. As we all. Thank God I am not. Um, no offense to Nebraska, uh, but I've um, had the unfortunate experience of driving through it a couple times. That's the worst part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear because, I mean, I, I suspect it can really only go up from there, right? The best part is driving out of Nebraska. <laughs> that's exactly how I felt every time. So I used to live in Iowa, and every time I got to the western border, right, I would enter from the east. And every time I exited the western border, I just felt this huge wave of relief and joy. <laughs> <laughs> like wash over me. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. If you've driven through Nebraska, you know exactly what I mean. Wait, Pete, isn't the western border of Iowa like Nebraska? No, no, no. When I exit the western border of, oh, Nebraska, of Nebraska, right? Oh, I oh, I understand. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. okay. And same going back through, right? When I come in from mm -hmm. the west, there's just like this drift. People who haven't made that drive have no idea what we're talking about and are just like lost. Yes. Yes. Okay. JJ, what exactly? are chess fields so chess fields i'm guessing or i know you're asking it's the name my name on twitter give me right. a follow at chess fields um it's the name of my substack substack.com slash chess fields and it's going to be in the future a name of another secret project that i might allude to if i feel like it but it's still secret but so chess fields i guess is sort of my brand and so what are chess fields Chess feels is this idea that the emotional feeling or more broadly psychological side of chess is an integral part of chess that is not always talked about or when it's talked about, it's talked about as a problem solve. Like I need to get my emotions to stop getting in the way of my chess as if we're not fundamentally emotional creatures and therefore any cognitive activity we do is going to have emotions as a fundamental fundament, <laughs> fundamental part of it. So chess feels is this idea that we need to be reflective with ourselves or in my teaching work on drawing out what role psychology is playing, how to harness it, how to talk about it in a constructive way, how to dig into feelings in a way that is more just being more than just being mad or disappointed at certain things, or trying to stop yourself from having feelings, and just kind of makes the game more vibrant and more of the microcosm of life that some people act like it is, without it just being a bland metaphor for war. So I have to say that like um, every time I see chess fields, like when I see you, I follow you on Twitter, of course, when I see you make a post or whatever it may be, and I just see the word chess fields, I'm like, Man, I've had chess feels before. <laughs> We've all come down with chess feels, and that's the point, right? I'm not right. trying to say that what's different about me is I have these feelings as much as my desire is to talk about, explore, reflect on these feelings that we all have. Mm. Yeah. It's hard to play the game without chess feels. It's very hard. I would say impossible. I've had, I feel like I've had good chess fields and bad chess fields, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of it's going to be terrible, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
The game fundamentally is suffering. Hashtag welcome to chess. Exactly. A lot of it's going to be terrible. A lot of it is going to be hashtag welcome to the chess underground. A lot of it's going to be. A lot of it. Oh, that's a great dude. New new show slogan. I love that. I I would buy that shirt. Welcome to the chess underground. A lot of it's going to be terrible. Okay. (laughs) But right. A lot of it, a lot of it is going to be good or bad, but I think that I think it's really what I want to get back to is this desire. Maybe some of it has to do with chess being such a male-dominated field and men being taught to repress emotions. Maybe some of it has to do, not unrelated, with chess being thought of as like a sport or a battle or like mental psychological warfare. And all of this encourages kind of repressing your feelings. Um, so you have them, you notice you're having them, but you try to ignore them and bad feelings can be useful. Uh, you hear, even within sports, you hear all the time of like being motivated more by that last second loss than by any amount of success mm-hmm. or really not wanting to have that feeling again or bullets and board I, material. Mm-hmm, exactly. All that. Or I think for me, um, I think a lot of people probably have this, but sometimes I've noticed that I play my most, um, like my most combative, enterprising, exciting chess with my back against the wall when I'm having that feeling of terror. Right. And so a project is, you know, how can I harness that without having to wait until I'm borderline lost? <laughs> right, right. Um, or, or more generally, before I like, I would like, like I know, like I know that these feelings trigger certain things that are very good, and chess feels can be kind of like reflecting on why certain things trigger those feelings and working on them and making them work for you rather than like being controlled by them. Yeah, I think you know we have this. You mentioned like a battle or a war and, and all of these, these connotations and, right. and so on. We have this very adversarial badge, maybe that's the right word, that we apply to chess, like all the yes. time. Right? Yes. Um, and I mean, that can be good, right? Because if you have this idea of, of the enemy, was it, was it Fisher who had some, who had some chess fields <laughs> ideas about like, uh, um, you know, you have to like your opponent is your enemy, right? You have to you have to hate your opponent at the board or something like that. Am I am I misquoting the greatest player in history? Probably, but yeah, we have this like really adversarial notion notion about chess and how that has to uh, impact the game, right? I mean, I, I I I can think of at least one TV interview where Fisher says that his favorite thing about chess is like watching, or is like crushing your opponent's yes. soul, or like yes, watching their right. spirit. Um, and I'm pulling up a quote right now that I saw somebody post on Twitter from like an old book, older book on chess psychology that had this um, approach to it that I just thought was really um, misguided. But I'm scrolling while looking for it. But so, so while you track that down, one of the things mm-hmm. I'm curious about, um, you know, we talked about bad chess fields and like terror and that sort of thing. Yes. I, I've been a chess coach for a long time. I know you're a chess coach. I know a lot of your content production is related to coaching that's right right yes so here's one thing i'm curious about um i think one of the biggest struggles for a coach is working with a student to coach them on how to overcome losses or like really like crest falling i just invented that word maybe (laughs) uh, moments in chess and in their chess journey um so what advice do you give them for that right i mean a lot of like there's lots of cliched advice. Every loss is an opportunity. Um, one of the more tongue in cheek things I say, especially with my adults, is, "Aren't you glad this is just a hobby?" <laughs> Which I mean, it kind of sounds it sounds yeah. almost dismissive, but honestly, that's one of the things that makes me feel so much better. Is cool my earning potential, my public reputation. Um, none of that is staked on the outcome of this game. What a relief that I can be as passionate and serious about it, but I can just be free to say, okay, I learned something about how I play when the pressure is on or how, or I learned, or if my opponent just completely outclassed me, I got a free lesson from my opponent and it didn't happen publicly. It didn't happen um, in a tournament I needed to win 
to pay my rent. Right. Um, and that is ultimately really nice that even the worst things that happen in chess are opportunities in a way that for professional competitors in anything, it isn't. And that framing is helpful for me because I don't want to ever encourage my students to get over a loss by not thinking about it because that is a fast track to making the same mistake. Right. And I definitely have worked with people like that who they're very good at blocking out or shutting out the horrible things, but the risk associated with that is if you chalk off a game that you lost on a one-move blunder or missing a tactic or something as a fluke accident, then you're never going to get to the source of why this is happening. And you can, I think this was like me as a teenager, um, most of my losses were due to bad luck and it was only a few years removed from that and maturity coming back to the game that I realized, wait a minute, this wasn't bad luck. This was bad time management, bad positions. There were so many lessons in how I played that would help that I didn't want to lose use because the advice I was getting or internalized at least was something closer to don't dwell on the losses. Yeah. So that's the big thing is like these you will learn more from how you lost a game of chess than you will from reading an entire book. Yeah, I always thought like bad luck was a really strange phrase to use in terms of chess. It all depends on the pieces you get, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. You know, if you look up I don't know if this is still the case, but I remember you used to be able to look up the game of chess um, in the dictionary. Like we had, <laughs> we had one of these gigantic old. I, I, I will never forget this book at my grade school. Um, you know, one, you know, one of those old like fifty thousand page dictionaries that weighs like seventy pounds just to pick the book up. It has like its own table and stand, and you can page through it almost like some weird, you know, volume of ancient lore or what have you. <laughs> um, and the definition of chess was a game of pure skill. Like that was the first, those were the first ha. five words, right? I'm sorry, did I get that right? A game of pure, yeah. Those were the first five words. And I, I think it went on a little further after that, you know, but it was a game of, a game of pure skill, period, full stop, you know, and then it maybe talked about some other stuff like the board and where it came from and that sort of thing. By the way, and related to that, I found the quote I was looking for from okay. the book by Ruben Fine, The Psychology of the Chess Player. Okay. And he says, For the average chess player, the intellectual appeal of the game is quite conscious and is in fact its major asset in his eyes. If asked why he plays, he says it is a game of skill in which brain is matched against brain. So they're talking about chess as intellect and skill. By contrast, the aggression is deeply repressed. To most, it comes as a surprise to learn that chess is an outlet for hostile feelings. And the nature of the game serves to conceal it increasingly. No blows are stuck, blah, blah, blah. But So just the idea here that what Fine is getting at is there is a psychological component to the game that is not captured by it's a game of pure skill or intellect, but he entirely immediately goes to aggression, hostile feelings. You know, the sorts right. of Fisher ideas of decimating and demoralizing your opponent as if those are the only feelings going on or that it's an adversarial project rather than you and your opponent really are creating something. You, it's a really intimate act, playing a game of chess with somebody and understanding what the other person is thinking and putting all your effort on trying to understand what they're thinking. There's a lot of feelings there that have nothing to do with aggression or hostility. So just the way that even in the attempt to say there are feelings in chess, the tendency, at least in like older literature, has been to be like, yeah, and the feelings are I want to kill you, which is like, that's not really yeah, a like what Yeah, what a fascinating quote, right? Chess is an yes. outlet for aggression. I <laughs> and mean, I so think I'll, it can I'll be, be honest, I definitely feel that way sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> like, I don't think it's wrong. Internet bullet, right? You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but wow, I mean, interesting. I mean, yeah, when I, if I'm tilting in chess or mad about something else, I'll play a fast blitz game, mm -hmm. something, you know, like a Vienna Gambit or some sort of early age four, just something where the only goal is just, you know, make one in 20 moves. No. <laughs> <laughs> and well, but, but the real goal, because no, the real goal is just like, I want to like destroy you as quick as possible with mate and throw all of the like more nuanced stuff to the wind. So I can, I can relate to that, but the idea that that is the fundamental goal or even the fundamental emotion associated with chess just seems so misguided. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, you, JJ, what, what got you, what got you interested in this? I mean, do you have, 
Do you have mm. a background in psychology? What drew you to to chess fields or to this idea or these ideas? It's more than one. I have no background in psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, I, chess, we should say. All right. Well, it's my foreground. Does being a tournament player like automatically give you a background in psychology? Probably. It gives you. uh, It gives you the empirical data set to become a psychologist of chess if you choose to interpret your data set. But a lot of people don't interpret the data they have and instead end up saying things like chess is an outlet for aggression. (laughs) Sorry to Ruben Fine. That's that's like a very um, you know what, early 20th century uh, male viewpoint about a battle game. Yes. Or even just, I, I do know that like, and there, that for a while, uh, biological aggression was thought of in the literature at an early 20th century male viewpoint. Aggression itself was thought as just the natural expression of dominance or domination. Yeah. That it wasn't, the result of unprocessed or repressed other feelings that it wasn't just natural or, or like in itself like a good. And I'm probably getting this wrong a little bit because this is something I picked up from one lecture in a philosophy of science lecture five years ago. But but just this idea that aggression itself was thought of as a good or complete thing helps make a little bit more sense of the idea that... Um, if your goal is to just dominate your opponent, then aggression is the domain of expressing that dominance. Whereas none of that is true. But for my background, my background is in, in school at least, is in philosophy. Okay. But a major part of the philosophy that I was interested in, especially in my grad program, which I was in for a large number of years, actually, and I think I'm technically still in it, but I am... <laughs> unlikely to finish because I'm teaching chess and enjoying that a lot more. But a lot of my interest in philosophy has to do with language or specifically communication and what is communicated besides just the meaning of whatever sentence is said. Mm -hmm. Um, And how a lot of that communication is also a collaborative process, that active listening and improvising and all of that good stuff, as well as maybe some sort of communal rules of what sorts of speech acts like a promise or something or a order uh, convey what sorts of changes in the relationship. Um, Mm -hmm. If I'm your boss, I can order you to do something. If I'm not your boss and I order you to do something, does that somehow change not just what you have to do, but our relationship? Either you view me as a superior, you view me as an asshole (laughs) in some way, right? The, The overall social uh context of the of us has changed because of what was said and i didn't just get in there and say i'm your boss now or say i'm an asshole now so there is this idea of of language as the creation and recreation of social roles that i think sets me up to see chess this way and is why i like chess a lot more when i came back to studying it after thinking about this stuff for a few years But I think the other major reason for my background is I've always had an interest in, I guess, feminism broadly construed, feminism, feminist philosophy, conceptions of masculinity. And a lot of it has had to do with just this personal project of figuring out what I am, who I am, and making sense of what I felt I had internalized I was supposed to be in order to be a man. And whether I was a man, whether I would identify that way, whether... Um, being a man had to require any sorts of following norms of masculinity and what those norms were. And I think even though I was not really, I was not playing sports, I was not in a lot of conventionally uh, hyper-masculine spaces from the music I liked to philosophy to chess, the spaces I was in were very male-dominated in a way that often left me feeling uncomfortable from rude comments the occasional time a girl dared to show up in a chess space to just a general sort of this expression of aggression. It was like, this can't be the way. <laughs> and so I've, oh, and so that was the other thing I think I brought back to chess when I came to chess was this interest in 
shared activity, communication, and process, and how chess was such a nice representation of that. But also, more generally, I guess this idea that if I was going to be in chess, I wanted to think about how I could be in chess in a way that was very anti-normative, anti those ideas that chess is an expression of aggression or the manifestations of that that come in a lot of the hostility or arrogance that I think reinforce a lot of male dominance in chess. Interesting. You know, um, as you were talking, it reminded me a lot about, so I, I, my background was in English and writing and mm. um, reminded me a lot about this conversation between like uh, authorial intent versus like what the reader brings with them to the table. Oh, right? interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in terms of like having a conversation, right. And how that can change based on the context and the yes. structure that, that, that it occurs within. Um, I'm curious uh, if chess is not an outlet for aggression, mm-hmm. and it's not confrontation. What do you think it is like at, at its, at its essence? I suppose I think that it is ultimately... That's like a really broad and open-ended question, right? I don't know. I thought, what What do you mean, what is it? You know the rules. What Jeez. is it? Yeah, I know the rules. I know how to play. It's a game, right? It's it's a checkmate that, your opponent. It's um, just a board game? No, I think, I think chess, and maybe it's not, maybe this isn't, you know, like a unique definition to chess, and maybe people with would say, well, the same is true of Go, or the same is true of... Fortnite, although I don't really understand what Fortnite is. Um, I would say that chess... That's, uh, that's an outlet for uh, aggression. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Fortnite is. Right? Cool. I should never play it. Uh, I would say that chess is ultimately an attempt to create something with another person. And it is an attempt to create something with another person in a very particular way where... Our goal is to play a game of chess and our goal is to, but our goal is not, you know, to do something together in the traditional sense of you and I have the same goal of making this episode good. It's not like we're having this conversation to see who's going to win the conversation. We're doing this together in that way. And in chess, we're not doing something together that way. Our goals are very much contrary to each other's. But that doesn't mean that we're not also deeply reflecting on the other person and making every decision based off of beliefs about how they're making decisions and levels of representation. And so the ultimate thing that's created isn't, you know, a podcast. It isn't some shared project. What's created is almost a artifact of these attempts to understand each other better than we understood ourselves. And when you go through a game of chess, that's what you're seeing, is you're seeing these reflections of, here's what they were thinking, here's what they were thinking the other person was thinking, and all of those layers and stuff all put in there to see. And yes, there's often going to be a winner or a loser, or if there's a failure for one to outthink the other, a draw. But I think it's seeing that conversation that is so responsive and intimate that is ultimately what's being created by a game of chess one of my all-time favorite uh chess quotes was kasparov talking about his quote-unquote immortal game versus topolov i think it was by Mm -hmm. genzaya 2006 and he said and i'm gonna horribly misquote it but it was something along the lines of um you know i saw this line equalized but topolov looked up perhaps he got a message from god that he should play a great game that day (laughs) It takes <laughs> it takes two, you know, to do that, and I think that's the important. Yes. Part was the end about the it takes two. Yes, um, cue the sappy seventies song. Um, this is uh this is I'm not sure if you saw this on Twitter recently that um this is of course the Animal Crossing game. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? I know what Animal Crossing is, mm-hmm. and I I actually have seen it played. Um, but so there's this a, is scene, a big leap for even me to understand. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah, the the answer is out. no, I don't. Okay. So, <laughs> um, I believe it was, uh, Lula who is a like chess streamer. I believe she, she posted on, in, on her Twitter feed, she was playing animal crossing and there is a chessboard set up and the position was like incomprehensible, partially because it was very unclear which pieces were which. Okay. But then some chess detective looked at it and said, wait a minute. That's Topolov Kasparov. Well, I can see that's okay. 
Kasparov's immortal. Um, and even like this somehow got back to Kasparov, who tweeted, there's at least one chess fan on the Nintendo team behind this game. So it's just this little like still in the game. There's just like a board in there. And the position on the board is the end position of that game. Oh, wow. OK, that's mm-hmm. OK. All right. Now I'm with you. Yeah, no, it, it made cool. to- it made total sense. It's just, but I I think until recently it would not have made sense to call that the Animal Crossing game for any reason. But yeah, it's the it's not his immortal game. It's the Animal Crossing game. Go other times. <laughs> my bad. Yeah, my bad. I'm so like 2010. It's cool. It's true. I'm I'm, I'm stuck there. <laughs> Perhaps never to move again. Is Twitter a content creation platform? For me, or in general? In general, what do you think? Or for you, um, either one, both. I, probably yes, but to a fault. Um, but yeah, boy, I don't. I'm not sure. I understand why would it not be a content creation platform? You know, I think some people think of content creation. There's a perception that like it's maybe um, producing a video or writing something. I guess on Twitter you write something, right? But whereas Twitter, <laughs> yeah. because of the limited characters, it's just like hmm. random. Random thought dump. I don't. I don't know. Is random thought dump not content? Like by default? right. I mean, first, I would probably want to argue that random thought dump is it's content. content yep, but I agree. Even if you convince me that it wasn't, I would say that a lot of what people do on their twitters, including me, is a sort of curated performance of random thought dump that is itself an act of content. Right. Like, oh, dude, I love that curated performance. Like not every, especially for people who, you know, are primarily in a chess space or have a sort of personality. And I believe that everyone on the internet has some sort of persona for some people it has nothing to do with who they are. For some people has a lot to do, but there's certain things I don't really know what, but there's certain things I would just never tweet about. Or maybe there's things I would tweet about that I'm not going to tweet about because I know my following is mainly chess. So my thought dumps or, or like, there's certain things that are probably too kind for me to tweet and certain things that are too mean-spirited to tweet. So I have lots of thoughts that for whatever reason wouldn't make it to the feed. So at the very least, I think what I'm putting forward is content, even if it's just random thoughts. And also, I think you see a lot of people, me sometimes, like Nate Solon is a person who I think of doing this. Like They have these threads that are these amazing resources of ways to improve your dress that will just be like posted one tweet at a time or like, people sharing good exercises to solve. Yeah, that's all content. Is it just me or did, did chess Twitter like absolutely explode in like the last four to five years? Like maybe even hyper accelerated, hyper accelerated by the pandemic. But uh, for those of us stuck in 2010, like me, like mm-hmm. it just feels like chess Twitter blew up. Is that do you have that same perception? I am not the right person to ask because okay. I did not make my chess Twitter until the start of the pandemic in March 2020. Okay. So, or I suppose, I mean, at the very least, that was true for me that maybe if I didn't live pre at that point in Chicago, which had a vibrant IRL chess community, I probably would have sought one out before and maybe found chess Twitter. And I was having that craving more. And by 2018 or so than it was previously, but by the time that things were going virtual, that was definitely where I had more of a desire for an online chess community. So I suppose I, I imagine that that's been really common. And then you have this like uh, exponential growth effect where when that community is just 10 people, you know, it takes a lot of work and paying attention and whatnot to fit into it if you gel with it. But by the time there's thousands of people in it, it's pretty easy to just slide right in. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. How, how is the, you know, um, Chicago does have or had a really vibrant IRL chess community. How is the chess community in Nebraska? It is growing. It is, it is, it is not, not to say that the players are young. A lot of them are old. Way way old, but um, it is it is Are a they young Twitter co- fans out there. <laughs> it is a young community in the sense of the few like we have a few tournaments a year, a few different people run one. I helped direct one that was at the university, University of Nebraska. But the few tournaments I've been to have all I've been hearing the people who were hosting them saying these are record record breaking numbers in attendance. Wow. Um we had one very small like open section at a recent one-day tournament when the TD was like, I can't remember the last time that we had three people over at 2,000 playing in the top section. So in strength, it's growing. Or I think for the 
there's this the Cornhusker State Games, which is essentially the Nebraska Olympics. I will not elaborate, but chess is a sport <laughs> for that. And they had oh, oh, no. the like open section was maybe a third unrated, and the like one day beginner section was over half unrated players. And the other tournaments I've seen have all had that effect where there's just a lot of people who really either picked up chess during the pandemic or have only during the pandemic started to find out that there is a chess scene or that they'd want to be part of a chess scene. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, there's a lot of interest and a lot of the people who are interested are pretty dang good as well, which is really exciting, but it just seems like there's a lot more um, demand and desire for tournaments, for clubs, et cetera, than there was. I mean, I didn't move here until the, until like a few months into the pandemic, but my sense is that was not the case a few years ago, or at least not as much, or at Roxton Wayne, because you had, of course, you know, um, the uh, the big daddy of Chess Life magazine, John Hartman, lives in Nebraska, had previously run tournaments. Title. I assumed, I was trying to remember, because, yeah. I'm, big, big I'm, daddy of Chess Life magazine. I'm not going to make jokes about him because I want him to hire me for more paid writing opportunities. I think I'm going to ask John to update his uh, email signature to that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that's really cool. So let's talk, about, let's talk about that for a minute. You mentioned you moved to Nebraska at the start of the pandemic. Um, number one, I'm really curious what that was like. I mean, that's, look, I, I've been to both places, Chicago and Nebraska, mm-hmm. way more than I would like to in the case of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And a lot in the case of Chicago, um, mm-hmm. and that's a big that's a big change. That's a big transition. You know, what was it like, especially for somebody who uh, you know comes from a big city, appreciates a vibrant chess community? Very different Nebraska fields versus Chicago fields. Uh, um, oh, one hundred percent. I mean, honestly, I think the major thing that has I can say that I really like Nebraska, that I live in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is a college town where the main university is. I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which was a college town where the main university was. So I feel there's a lot of similarities between the two places, just sub basketball for football and winning a lot with losing a lot. And it's (laughs) the same place. And there's... Man, that was harsh. This is my read on Nebraska is that, you know, if you want to start a conversation with a male stranger of a certain age during the fall, you can just say that was a tough game, huh? Um, wow. Okay. But, but I do. Yeah. Uh, well, I, or, or I mean, I think the that, Iowa fan in, in me loves this. So well, well, I, th- or I think that their coach over the past three years has some remarkable statistic of like maybe 75% of the games they've played have been settled by one score or less. And of those games, they've lost like 80, 85% of them. Wow. Which is just like such a statistical aberration. I was going to say, I feel like you have to, like, you have to almost be trying. You know? Exactly. I, and I think that would probably be the chess equivalent of whether you're playing 300 points down or 600 points up, you're taking every game to a drawish 90 move end game and then losing all of them. Which is just like a unique set of skills that is fascinating. Yeah. So, so uh, which is to say that it's not just so much that we have a bad team, but that the way that they've managed to be almost good enough, but never able to get over that. And I relate to that too, because I think at a certain point, if you know you lose every end game you play, <laughs> um, no matter how much you work, it's going to be really hard to find that you know inner Magnus Carlsen who's telling you that you're going to win this drawish end game, right? And but but anyways, I think I think the major thing that it has that hasn't made it feel that different is we moved here during the pandemic and we are still we are still trying to live a life. My wife and I we got married like two weeks ago. Yes, yeah, congratulations! Ago. Thank you so much. Um, it was it was really fun. We got married in Nebraska, but the uh, because we're still living a pretty socially distanced life. All of Amelia, my wife's family, is here. So we have a lot of family who we see and who we enjoy spending time with. But beyond that, we weren't doing much in Chicago and weren't going to be, and we aren't doing much here. So that kind of makes makes the transition a bit easier because I'm still slowly meeting, finding people, spaces and stuff yeah. and building up that world for hopefully one day when it feels 
responsible to be in that world rather than like showing up one day and feeling like I've lost everything. Um, that feeling of loss actually is what I experienced in Chicago in March 2020. Yeah. Um, oh I think one major difference though will be for chess and traveling where um, a lot of the bigger tournaments I'll want to play are tournaments where you have like 2,000 plus sections or open sections where there's not just three people above 2,000, but the entire field is will be will require traveling and planning in a way that living in Chicago or previously when I lived in New York for a few months, you just decide you feel like playing a tournament and there's probably something that weekend and there's probably going to be a lot of strong players there. And so the idea of needing advanced planning and then having to sit with that pit in your stomach knowing a tournament's coming up or the idea that maybe that means that I'm not going to be playing an event every month, but maybe when there's that cluster of tournaments in the summer or that cluster of tournaments in November, December, I might be playing a lot and then not play at all for a few months because it doesn't really make sense to drive to Minnesota in February for the closest strong tournament. Yeah, I've uh, made the mistake of doing that before. Okay, Dri- good. Driving I'm glad to, to Minnesota hear Minnesota in February, by the way. I'm, I'm glad to hear you call that a mistake because I've genuinely been thinking of doing that. I mean, I'm sure that the tournament's going to be great. I would just have to drive six hours to get there. I mean, you can do it, and you can sometimes even make it there in one piece, uh, but that does not necessarily mean that it was uh, an ultimately wise choice. I remember I actually one time got snowed in to the point where I literally spent half the night uh, pulled off on some random highway off the interstate just because there was nothing else to do. I mean, you know, you just there was so much snow, you couldn't see, you couldn't move, and Toyota Camrys are not exactly off-road vehicles, so... Um, I uh, made the executive decision to tough it out uh, in that way. Yeah, we similarly drive a Prius, so maybe not. Yeah, I mean, I I just don't think they're built for, like, you know, Midwestern winters. Um, But but, uh, that aside, um, yeah, so one of the things that uh, you mentioned your wedding and getting married recently, one of the things that I really wanted to ask you about, and again, congratulations, but you you had, like, a... A, a chess bachelor party. Uh, previous previous guest um, and also streamer uh, Akash Maduri told me a little bit about it. Oh right, yeah, where Akash this, was there. Yeah, Gopal Menon, another from? friend of the podcast. Yeah, I, I think it was officially the uh, or at least its title on King registration, and I think on the official USCF upload was uh, like. Actually, let me just make sure I'm quoting it correctly because my friend. And I worked hard on the title. It was JJ's Blatch- Bachelorette Blitztravaganza Blowout Barbecue. Yeah. It's, this is I'm reading this from the USCF website. So, so what is it about, um, like, the need for alliteration in great titles like that? Um, you're the English person, so I'll punt that back to you. But I can tell you more about the tournament. Um, so. Okay. So um, my friend in Chicago and Matt, Matt Zatkoff, community organizer extraordinaire, chess community, everything he does, he's just bringing people together and it's great. And he's a, a very passionate club chess player. And he started running a chess club out of the local American Legion across the street from his house in Lincoln Square in Chicago. And then they started having this idea I suppose after COVID where they're saying, you know, we, there's a park right across the street from this building. This building has a bunch of tables and folding chairs, et cetera. We have a bunch of chess boards for the club. We could host socially distanced, masked up outside blitz tournaments in the park during the nicer months of Chicago. And they could still be USCF rated and whatnot. And it was one of the like few IRL chess things that was going on OTB or especially rated OTB. So when I was talking to Matt and a few of my Chicago friends and really trying to think what would I want to do for some sort of pre-wedding trip to Chicago thing, I was like, Matt, can you run one of these tournaments on a week when I'm going to be in town? And so we made that work. And we had a lot of, so we had Akash played, um, friend of the podcast, Gopal played. So there was very, it was a very, very strong field. But it was just really a lot of it were people who I knew and loved through Chicago chess. And then we were able to like stay at the Legion and hang out there for most of the night. And it just became this whole extravaganza. And Matt was like setting up his smoker and like barbecuing stuff and other people brought food. And it was this really beautiful celebration of 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 chess that I had really missed. Um, and I played 
horribly, as you'd expect. <laughs> as, as you would expect, exactly. Yeah. I'm told I only lost 19 points for my Blitz rating since I'm looking on the MSA page. That's not the end of the world. No. You get that back. They'll come back. Yeah. So I, um, I, I regret not playing in that. That sounds like a super fun time. Uh, yeah, you should have. You know, uh, we are we are still like pretty taking taking the whole uh, social distance thing pretty seriously. Um, I mean, I was doing that since like at least two thousand five, so I understand. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it feels sometimes, I guess, to to like some to some people, it probably felt like more like, what's the big deal, you know? Uh, well, I mean, I'm very like empathetic towards people who have been struggling, and I've not been without my struggles. But I think the tweet that. Uh, Amelia showed me early on was I'm learning that my lifestyle is what other people call quarantine. <laughs> yes. Oh gosh. Why that really, that really strikes a, a note. Yeah. Um, so, so JJ, you know, one of the things that um, I wanted to talk to you about today, uh, right. because this, this season is a lot about um, streaming and okay. uh, I, I think personally you use streaming in a really unique way. Um, and so I'm curious if you could if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, what you do with your streams, how you organize them, and um, you know how how you find the functionality there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm Chessfields on Twitch as well, and it's possible in the future I'll stream a lot more. I have to say, right now I stream on a super duper occasional basis. But what I find most satisfying for the streams I do is I actually will organize little tournaments for people who take regular lessons with me or other people I know who are similar level and who I like who are working on their chess. And I'll say, look, you know, I'll set up a little tournament on Elite Chess Arena at this time. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to stream it. So I will be giving commentary for anyone who wants to watch on the games that you're playing. But also Twitch, I believe... I think there's some way if you're like a super streamer or something to save the videos forever. But at the very least for... For me, my videos will save on my Twitch feed for two weeks. So you can go back and watch the VOD video on demand of your coach or friend, whoever I am to you, giving commentary on your games and thoughts about what's going on and things that are working or not working. And then I'll take a few instructive positions and use them for like little puzzle packs that I'll give out to all my students or um, write a longer post about what was going on in a certain position that I thought was really instructive and send it out as a newsletter. So, and and I, I think that's a lot of fun because as I was saying earlier, you know, you learn a lot more from your own games or from your losses than anything else. And making it a kind of tournament setting encourages you to slow down a bit and not multitask while you're playing. And knowing that the person you take lessons from is watching can create a sort right. of pressure, which is the kind of thing you want practice with playing under. And I find that a lot more useful than having, you know, half of or all of an, a private lesson be spent. Like you're going to play a game and you're going to share your screen with me and I'm going to watch and I'm going to bite my tongue for 50 minutes. And then the last 10 minutes we'll spend talking about what could have gone differently. Like that doesn't feel like a good use of a private hour. Um, and it's, I just also don't enjoy having to bite my tongue. So here I'm able to say everything I want and still have it be shared in a way. And I've had people who play those training tournaments, like, you know, be in touch and start playing regular games online and finding new training partners that way, develop little rivalries. And I have a lot of people, some people around my level and some people who aren't really taking lessons with me or anything who watch and really seem to enjoy the, the battles there and the sorts of explanations. And I just find that to be such a useful tool that is much easier than easier to me to do that live and just to be bouncing back and forth between the games and like a private tournament than say to compile 10 games my students have played and clip them together into a YouTube video and upload that forever or something and work on beating the YouTube algorithm. So that's, I get a lot of joy out of doing this way and I get very animated watching these people who I care about play for better or for worse sometimes. And um, I think it really is good instructional content and a lot of people who play them tell me that they'll like watch not just the comments on their own games, but they will 
maybe in a few settings, like watch the whole three hour video of everything I was saying about all the games. And that's really cool to be able to give them that without, you know, having to do a three hour video for each individual person I teach. Yeah, I think I, I personally think this is just such a cool and unique idea. Um, and I'm probably going to steal it at some point. Uh, you should. But, you know, I love I love the idea of of using Twitch in this medium, right? I mean, it's used mm -hmm. for so many things. And I think we're really seeing how, uh, especially, you know, during the past couple of years, how um, these different online mediums can really impact all aspects of our life. Right. Uh, even something like Im improvement and like learning. Um, and it's really neat to see like media and content used that way. And I should definitely plug uh, a popular Twitch channel that does some of this, or at least in the past has done this as well. I think they still do is Chess Dojo. Yes, um, actually are... future, future guests. Uh, oh, good. I was just, just to say for another, that, they, that there's no, between straight up streaming lessons to um, having like, if they have like slow, mm -hmm. slow tournaments or training games or something, if you play them at a certain time, you'll have some of the very, very strong like IMGM hosts of the show giving commentary or feedback, or like they'll have segments where you can show up to have a game review. So they do this on a much more streamlined, organized, and regular basis. But there's also something that's sometimes hard, you know, about when you have 400 viewers or however many they have, it's sometimes hard to cater to everyone in a way sure. yeah. where just me for an audience of a couple dozen at most people who all know me and I know the people playing just screaming and throwing something across the room when someone like blunders in a winning position right. is it's a different vibe <laughs> totally <laughs> that I couldn't do if I actually had a following right right I was gonna say but just as entertaining um, yeah. so so um I'm curious, Flo and Zoe, chess enthusiasts, do they do they make appearances? Uh, oh yeah. So for those who don't know, um, Flo and Zoe are assistant coaches. They are 11 year old Pekingese dogs. Um, yeah, I I'd set this up in the past where I had like a second camera set up that was just on them when they're in the office. The Flo and Zoe could, cam. The Flo the Flo Zoe cam, and um, <laughs> yeah, I, I could do that again, or definitely they'll they'll make appearances. But I think in they don't like my chess office in the winter because it gets pretty chilly down here. So usually, recently, it's been the cat hanging out down here. But she's a actual terrorist. Um, so, so like when that um, green light comes on on your camera on the computer or like on the charger or something, those are her favorite toys. So she just shows up to interfere. Uh, yeah, I, Although, think, I think she had a few comments earlier too. Earlier, yeah, you, you'll yeah. you'll hear she's finally left us alone. Although I've been playing on my laptop before, and Flo has definitely made some moves, just like stepping on the mouse or something. She's terrible at chess, is what I find. <laughs> Maybe she just has you know like uh, Alpha Zero esque plans that are hard to spot initially. No, <laughs> no, that's not it. Okay, nothing about her is plans or hard to spot. Totally fair. Um, JJ, one, one of the things that you do, and I'm, I'm curious if this is also done via stream. Um, mm -hmm. I know you do, you do coaching like on a broader scale with, with camps. Um, yes. And I have to say the title of your chess camp, Camp Chess Fields, is maybe uh, the most appealing chess camp title I've ever seen. <laughs> well, um, in this camp, I'm proud of the title for this one, which is okay. Camp Chess Fields 3. It doesn't explode or deleted matter what opening you play. Even better, yeah. <laughs> I think the one that I saw, the, the very first one I saw was Chess Fields 1. Do you remember what the title was for that one? Not even sure there was a title for okay. that one. but Because um, I think I was just that. And then I did one with Gopal Menon on attacking chess. Okay. Um, I like to work more with him. It's just, um, it's hard when I'm trying to balance the thing of trying to keep things at an affordable price point and then bring on a second person who adds so much value, but then without it just meaning that each of us get Right. half the money for twice the work <laughs> but um but in the future i'd love to do more stuff with gopal and we'll have some ideas but yeah yeah so camp is these occasional offerings i do semi-regular of group classes on a theme mm -hmm. and the idea there is it is important in a coaching business to charge a rate that i hope is like competitive and fair but not you know 
the bare, bare minimum for private lessons, but then also have other offerings of coach and stuff that can be more accessible and affordable, either for people who want to supplement to private lessons or people who don't have the time, energy, or finances to commit to private lessons or who just really want like a taste of something um, to do that. And so this is going to be two lectures a week for two weeks. And those will probably just be done privately on Zoom and I'll record them and send them to everyone. But there is a streaming component, which is after the first two lessons, we're going to have a pair, a set of training games that I'll definitely stream on my Twitch that first Saturday. And then like a little final tournament at the end. But because the theme of this camp is openings, and in particular, the first part of it is going to be on figuring out what sorts of opening principles in the more advanced sense matter for coming up with plans in the middle game. So things like what the pawn center looks like and where you should attack based on that or whether or like when to prioritize the initiative versus development. Things like that where trying to figure out how to come up with a blueprint for how to think about those things that isn't just I'm going to memorize every single line and every single book and then just know in any position what to do. Mm-hmm. which is from what I can tell what Chessable seems to be think you should do. Um, well, they don't care what you do as long as you give them money. But but it, 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 there is this to like... To be fair, I would say that's also true for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, it's also, I mean, that's also true for me. I just like am transparent about it. I don't pretend that, yeah, whatever. Um, actually, no, I care what you do. I don't want you to waste your money. I want you to feel like you got good value so right. you give me more of it. Um, but... <laughs> But right, right. Or like there's so much information out there about openings, finding a way to like make sense of it in a way that is digestible and actually usable and also contributes to your understanding of chess and not just to your understanding of one opening or one variation, I think is something that is not talked about as much. And I want to really work on what we can do and what sorts of habits we can build. And resources are out there to make these large amounts, vast amounts of information more manageable. So one thing I was going to do to practice the sort of being familiar and unfamiliar positions is the first set of training games. I'm definitely going to pick out very double-edged opening positions. And with no prior knowledge of what they are, I'm going to just have people play out from those positions. Um, so they're going to each be thrown into, you know, maybe 15 moves deep into a game of something that I'm intending to be completely outside of either of their repertoires, but that they should have some sort of skill set to be able to navigate in a way that is coherent and be forced to adapt on the fly because we are all going to be pulled out of books sometimes, no matter how good our book is. And then the final games, I'll probably let them play from the start, but really going to focus on that. And the streaming of that, I think, is going to be really fun. And I hope to have other friends in like the chess Twitter community on as well as we talk about like what we're seeing in these positions and where we would think things should go. Or if we are ta- pulling up a database and looking at what has been played in these positions and making sense of how we could figure out for ourselves that those sorts of things are there. And I'm going to like aim for very... Um, I don't know the right adjective for it. I don't want like a super sharp knight orf that requires finding only moves. I don't think that's fair. But like, if you don't play the Ray Lopez and I throw you into a closed Ray Lopez on move 12, can you figure out a coherent way to organize your pieces based on how it looks when there's a lot of good ways to do it right. on both sides? And I yeah. think that can be super useful and a much better way to think about openings than like, I play this and in this I do these moves and it creates this kind of game. Um, yeah, and, no, I, I completely yeah. agree. I've I've always thought that like you know the the role of the coach is the how, not mm. not so much the what. You know, meaning like learning instead of just learning an opening, you can pick up an opening from anywhere, right? You can right. you can find it in a book, you can find it in a in a video, you can find it in a course, you know. Um, but instead, like what is what is the approach that I should use, right? What are the techniques that I can that I can adapt to? Um, to study the game well and to, and to, like you said, to be able to sit down at any position on move 12 and come up with a plan, you know, no matter how right. bizarre or strange it may look to me. Exactly. And to be able to say, and this is like, this is the, the how, these are the mechanics I used to come mm-hmm. up with the decision here rather than just like, well, I like attacking. And if I push my H pawn and put my bishop on D3, I have an attack. Like that's a plan, <laughs> right. but you don't get any points for that. Um, and the other, the other uh, social 
component of the camp is I'm setting up a Discord server that eventually is going to be for all of my students, but for right now, it's just going to be for people in the camp. And the Discord server is going to be a place where people can say, hey, you know, A, I have questions about what we talked about, or you shared some exercises or model games and I want to talk about them, but also just also having a thread of try to improvise in the opening, play something outside of your repertoire, or really push yourself to make intentional choices early in the game based on the stuff we talk about, share it here, get feedback from other people. And I hope that will be very interactive, but at the very least, I think that's a great exercise to have those sorts of prompts or like as yeah. we in the second week when we talk about like constructing a repertoire that is of manageable size and doing a lot of work yourself of like summarizing key ideas in your own words have a space for people to share that and really build resources together and i'm really hopeful that that will be a uh, habit that people can bring into their chess study in the future and that i think can do a lot of good yeah i completely agree i think you know this embrace of not just technology, but shared community spaces like a Discord, right? Right. Like even like I, even like a Twitch and a Twitter. Those those absolutely um, count. I think embracing that and applying it to uh, not just the game, but like you know, um, approach the game, learning the game. That that's really really effective, and it's so cool to see all those tools you know being implemented. Yeah, and I think, and I definitely, I'm not pretending to be the first to do that, no, but I'm just thinking not, a yeah, little, sure. <laughs> but, but in general, it is really nice that this is out there because right. I think one thing that I was, I've been thinking a lot about, like, experiences in school, because I was writing a little bit about this for my um, Substack newsletter today, where I was talking a bit about um, the importance of summarizing complex ideas in your own words, not just to make sure you understand it, but so when you want to reread that article, instead of having a 20-page dense tome to reread, you if you write one sentence explaining not just what was said, but how they got there in each paragraph, you've created and what stood out to you as your key points or something that you can actually skim. And similarly in chess, you know, if you can distill a chapter into these were the ideas that jumped out to me, these were the lines that I think I actually need to memorize, then you've actually made something you can review the night before a tournament instead of something that requires yeah. careful, careful study. And I, But I think something else that in grad school was always so important and probably underutilized there too was this idea of having these reading groups or study groups where there's no teacher, it's not a class, there's no grade, but it is you and several people with similar interests at around a similar level working through stuff together. And that forces you and or like you maybe you take turns presenting an idea or you just all share your own ideas or you just like pick a position and talk through it together there's a lot of ways you can do it but it's these sorts of uh social spaces that i think a lot of people have the experience in grad school of learning more from having to do that not under the microscope of a classroom yeah. um they learn more from that than their performances in class and it's hard to create those spaces in chess when there isn't like the equivalent of like your school cohort or something. And yeah. And, and so finding ways to create that I think is going to be really useful. And just like, it's also really for people who struggle or feel like they're struggling in chess. It's really nice to see people who you always assumed were much better than you are having a much easier time than you struggling just as much. Yeah. Or for those people to be impressed by your ideas and you start to realize that even though you don't have perfect understanding, you're not a GM or something, you are contributing, you are helpful, you are getting this, you're helping other people. I think those are just really rewarding, uplifting opportunities that you don't get in individualized study. Yeah, I've, I've always felt that like the two most important things for chess improvement um, and they go hand in hand. The first one was being able to simulate tournament conditions. Mm. Um, and sometimes simulate tournament conditions even means just like going and playing in a tournament. That's um, why I always make sure at least one person around me is coughing and sneezing uncontrollably <laughs> when I play. Excellent. So that's number one. And then number two is, and I, I can't stress this enough, but number two is like engaging with a community of peers. Whatever mm. your level may be, whether you're an abject beginner or a master player, you have to have a community of peers. And it doesn't have to be a big community. Like two or three people often is enough. More is better. If you, if you can find more, great. Um, but um, having a community of peers that you can talk about the game with, play the game with, look at things with, like that's so critical to chess improvement. And it sounds like, you know, you're, you're approaching it the same way. You've got both going on. 
and that's, and that's something that's that's I definitely just learned for me how how much value I got out of that. Like I have friends who I play online against regularly, or mm-hmm. if I'm like preparing for a match or something, I'm, I might be like, "Hey, I noticed that this person plays this line a lot." Like I had when we had like a Chicago Blitzers online match against players in the Caribbean. Um, I knew that. I realized my opponent played these sorts of Jobava London lines like D4 Bishop F4 with early knight C a lot. And I was like, hey, Akash, I know that you are into these systems too. Would you mind just like alternating colors and like playing a few games in this exact line, just a few blitz games, and we can just pause and talk about it after each one. And like at the end of the hour, we had that was like, probably the best thing you could have done to learn that opening, I'm guessing. Exactly. Yeah. And now I play that as white sometimes. And it's and my understanding, especially in the lines we talked about, but even in general, is way, way higher than it would have been after just like an hour of reading a book on that. Yep. And we were we like even I probably have forgotten them, but we even found a few moments where like a move that even the computer didn't think was the best that eventually came around to, or oh wow, this is actually an only move. So like, even at the level of theory, we were like making small developments, but at the very least for the feel for the position came out huge from that and that was just like having a friend and in that case also a teammate just be like yeah i can spend an hour on this this will be useful for me too and that was like that was those sorts of things are really awesome when you get to do that so jj this uh i'm sure there are some people out there listening to this thinking this sounds really cool you know um where where can they check it out where can they get connected with you how can they sign up that sort of stuff yeah so the easiest way to book things with me, whether it's camp, individual lessons, or there's even just if you want to get to know each other, or ask a few things, you can book a free 20-minute, I think I call it like a coffee chat, but you have to bring your own coffee because it's online. Um, there's <laughs> my You can book things with me. Someday and, soon, maybe that won't be true. Well, you can come to Nebraska and book coffee. If you like drive to Nebraska, I will buy you your coffee and talk to you for more than 20 minutes. Oh, wow. But, okay. Um, Mm, no, I'll, you can buy my coffee, but I'll talk to you for more than twenty minutes. Uh, but <laughs> but to book things with the the booking the book it's cheap. The booking is uh, bit.ly slash jj capitalized both lang capital L chess capitalized C because Bitly seems to be the only site I know of or like source I know of where capitalization matters. So it's jj lang chess cap j cap j cap l cap c and chess. We will make sure to get that, that link posted along with the podcast, too, for our listeners out Thank there. Thank you. Yep. And it, I do appreciate that. And uh, my Twitch is Chessfields. My Twitter is Chessfields. My Substack is Chessfields. You can even email me at Chessfields at gmail.com. So everything else is just Chessfields, Chessfields, Chessfields. And I should have, uh, I think I have my recent tweet is just going to be a link to the Substack I talked about, streamlining opening repertoire. And that's all going to be, that's all going to be there. And I think for like, regular contact and interaction i'm on twitter a lot yeah, I, I would just say you have weeks. the absolute and unquestioned official chess underground endorsement go follow this guy on twitter um he provides me not only with a ton of great chess stuff but uh lots of entertainment i frequently giggle at jj tweets that is the ultimate compliment. Thank you, Pete. Um, and I, I guess for people who made it this long, I think I feel in the mood to unveil a super special upcoming secret project. Okay. Um, I'm which, excited. Which is a friend of the chess Twitter community, Julia Rios, and I, and she does have a psychology background. She is a clinical psychologist finishing a PhD. We are starting a podcast and we're calling it we're calling it chess feels, but the idea is this is actually going to be on chess and psychology, and she's going to be bringing a very similar and absurd sense of humor to my own, but she's just funnier, but also psychological knowledge, and we're going to be really exploring everything from how from what we what what um from her giving me therapy to help me on my on overcoming difficulties in my own chess to talking about emotions and chess and like these sorts of spaces um, we're recording. We haven't un- unleashed anything and we probably won't for a little bit, but we're, we've recorded an episode and next week we're talking about whether people who say they're addicted to blitz or addicted to chess are actually thinking of addiction in the clinical sense or something more like obsession. And I think we're going to end up making the case that blitz is truly addictive, not just it's something, a passion or an obsessive passion, but it's genuinely addictive in the way that substances are. And 
there's so there's going to be really interesting and thanks to Julia, really deep conversations there. And that will be the Chess Feels podcast. And when it's live, if you follow me anywhere, you will know about it. But that's just as that was the special project I was alluding to earlier. I think when you asked if I had a background in psychology. Yeah, you you uh, gave me a little bit of a sneak preview about that before we talked today, and I am really excited to listen to that. But that sounds like something absolutely right up my alley. And as a as a self described uh, online blitz addict, uh, <laughs> I am not. I am. I guess I am both not surprised and somewhat relieved to hear that uh, assessment as to whether or not it is an addiction. Because it feels like yeah. I think I think that where we are right now is that chess is an obsession, but blitz is an addiction. That that feels right to me. Then I won't say any more. Okay. Yeah. We don't want to spoil it. Everybody, go listen to that. <laughs> go listen to the Chess Fields podcast. Um, it it will be out eventually, point. but I, I I don't have a timeline yet, which is why I didn't really want to spoil it but that's definitely going to be something i think that's going to be another way of really exploring a lot of these ideas and i'm so excited to work with such a close friend and brilliant wonderful person on that awesome i'm i'm excited to listen to it uh jj i cannot thank you enough for coming and chatting with me feels like our our hour flew by here um yeah was there any parting thoughts you wanted to leave with our listeners stop making fun of the london system it's a perfectly (laughs) fine opening did you did you by the way catch my um, conversation with Eric Rosen? Show? Um, no, I have not yet. So I may or may not have made a self-deprecating London hate meme. Uh huh. Um, because I used I, I played the London forever. Uh, I still will on occasion. Sure. And um, I made a meme. Uh, it's the one you know the guy the one where the guy's like sitting at a table. It's the change my mind meme. Yes. Yes. Okay. And the, the quote on the table was, uh, London players still cut the crust off their sandwiches. Uh, changing their mind. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of oh, a, no. a poke at myself a little bit, you know, because mm-hmm. um, I'm sometimes still like a stodgy little London player as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> Keep the London hate going as long as, uh, as long as it's like that, I guess. No, that sounds like good London hate. I think it's the people who genuinely believe that you can read the character the game is going to take off of the first two moves who just give me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Unless the first two moves are F3, King, F2, in which case you can read the character very well, and you're probably right. Well, there's even, there's, you know, even within the realm of like clowns, and that's just clown stuff, you know, like the difference between Ronald McDonald and Krusty is great. So I'm not even sure I agree with you, even if you know that it's a clown character. Yeah. Yes. That's a very, that's an excellent point as well. JJ, this has been fun. Again, I can't thank you enough. We will make sure to get all of your links up um, and make sure people can connect with you. Uh, Again, strong official chess underground endorsement. Go follow JJ on Twitter. It's a blast, it's a lot of fun. Um, for JJ Lang, uh, this is your host, Pete Carianis on the Chess Underground. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.7seasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis. <laughs>